Well, um, if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open it with me. Matthew chapter 9. We're going to cover a whopping four verses this morning. Matthew 9, we're going to begin in verse 14. Four verses. So we're going to go through 17. Uh-huh. Yeah, 14, 15, 16. Yeah, it's four verses. Okay. All right. Well, I think we're going to have a debate real quick. Um, uh, it's see, see what you all think. Um, what is better? Okay. So this, this may be a bit of an opinion. What is better, something old or something new? If you think it's something old, raise your hand. If you think it's something new, raise your hand. Okay. Okay, so I think that's pretty close to split. But see, here's the problem. I didn't give you a lot of information, right? I just told you what's better, something new or something old. Well, I think the answer, honestly, my opinion is the answer... It, Depends, right? It depends on what we're talking about. So let's just say, uh, and now I'll just tell you up front, like I would typically say new is better. Uh, I would typically say that. But I know that's not always the case, and some of you are like, why you got to be that way? Um, <laughs> now we're not going to the old jokes. We're just going to keep going. Okay, I would typically say new is better, okay? But let's just say we're talking about cars. What's better, a new car or an old classic car? So, would you go with the old car? Who would go with the new car? Okay, again, we're about 50-50. Now, what if we said what's better, something old or something new, and we talk about pizza? Okay, now, the reason I say pizza, I know that there's a lot of people who like cold pizza. They like cold pizza. Now, if you are an old pizza, if you like the cold pizza better than the fresh pizza, raise your hand. Y'all are weird. Okay. If you like the new pizza, the warm, just right out of the oven, raise your hand. That one is overwhelming majority. Okay, that's good. Y'all are more sanctified than I thought. Um, now, here's another one. Let's do one more, and then I'll get to the point. Let's talk about music. What's better? If you think old music is better, raise your hand. If you think new music is better, raise your hand. Okay, old music is apparently better. I'm glad you all said that. Okay, I didn't realize... I liked old music till just the other day. I was listening to my Spotify playlist, and uh, it shows, like, recommended stations. Um, and one of them was, like, 2003 rock. And I realized, well, that's, like, 20 years old now. So apparently old music is better than new. Um, think what you want about that. But apparently the old music is better than the new. And today, today though, I'm going to settle the debate. What's better, old or new? It's going to be settled today. I want to show you that the new is definitely better than the old. The new is undoubtedly, un, undeniably better than the old. And that's what we're going to see today. New is better. Because when we start talking about the church, when we start talking about the Bible, when we start talking about Christ, he came to usher in something new. And new, here in this particular case, is undoubtedly better than the old. Jesus came to bring something greater. It's, when Jesus came and he instituted the, the Christian faith, whenever he came and died for our sins and was raised for our justification, when he died and was raised, he brought about something new. And he didn't just tack something onto Judaism like, okay, well, we've got the Jewish faith here and Jesus is going to come and kind of, kind of make it a little bit different so that it might be a little bit improved. Jesus came to bring something new, something different. And what I want to show you today is it's far better from anything else the world has to offer. 
What Jesus brings about is so much better. So undoubtedly, the new is better. As we discuss this, though, I would like it if we could turn to Matthew chapter 9. Would you all stand with me out of respect for reading God's word? Matthew chapter 9, we're going to begin in verse 14, we'll go through verse 17. So it's relatively short, but it's got an awful lot. It says, Then John's disciples came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Well, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. You know what I just realized? I don't think I've told you Happy Father's Day once. So all dads in the room, Happy Father's Day. It's good to be with you today. I don't think there's any place I would rather be than here with the church on Father's Day. It's good to be with you. And, um, it, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm honored not only do I get to speak to you all on Father's Day, I get to speak to you all with my dad in the room. So I'm thankful my dad's here today. Um, I, I, I've told you all before. Could you cover your ears for just a minute? Um, I've, <laughs> no. <laughs> I've told you all before, I think I have the greatest dad ever. Um, I, I'm very blessed for the father I have, and it's really a privilege to get to speak to a room full of fathers today. Um, there's a bunch of men here who I believe are fantastic fathers who want nothing more than their kids to know Jesus and to follow after him. So dad's in the room. I am, I am blessed not only to get to speak to you today, but to get to know you and just have you guys pour into my life. So thank you for being good dads, okay? All right. Now, enough of the mushy-gushy stuff, I'm uncomfortable. So, last week, last week we saw Jesus deal with this question that came from the Pharisees, right? We saw him deal with this question from the Pharisees regarding Jesus and his association with, let's just call them the less desirable people in society, right? The, the tax collectors and sinners, they were all eating with Jesus, and the Pharisees are like, Jesus, why are you eating with these scum? Like, why are you eating with these people, but Jesus responded, and the way he did it, it showed how we could be brought in and we could be discipled, how we could be taught by Jesus himself, how we could be changed by Jesus. We could fall after him. And then whenever we do that, we come into fellowship with not only God, not only do we come into fellowship with Jesus, but also with other believers. And now we have fellowship with one another. And we see how that fellowship with Jesus and with one another, it will turn us to his mission. It will change us so that we see more like he does, so that we follow more like he leads. But the opposition, whenever Jesus, Jesus dispels these, these words from the Pharisees, the opposition doesn't just go away, does it? Of course not. We're going to see that here in just about a month. We're going to start looking at the opposition and how it actually, it actually grows. Jesus has more and more opposition that begins to mount against him. But today, we see just one more example of this. Because in the immediate, it doesn't go away either. See, today, Jesus faces another religious group who comes to question him. This time, it's the disciples of John, John the Baptist, right? So we see these disciples of John come. Now, John has been baptizing down by the Jordan. He's been building a following. And listen to what they ask. We just read just a moment ago. Listen to what they ask. In verse 14, it says, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? See, the problem these disciples of John have 
is that they see themselves tied more closely to the Pharisees than they do to Jesus. I mean, just listen to the way they ask it. Why do we and the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples don't. See, they're lumping themselves in with the Pharisees, saying, we're the religious people, why don't you behave the way we should? Now, the question that comes to Jesus here, it may simply be out of curiosity. Their motive may have just been like, well, this seems strange. Why aren't you guys fasting? It just doesn't make sense to us. But I believe it actually it was fueled more by jealousy and ego than it was by curiosity. And the reason I believe that is what we find over in John chapter 3, verse 26. Here, both Jesus and John, they've been baptizing down by the Jordan. And here's what it says. It says, so they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who is with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. See, these disciples of John, they think a lot like we probably think sometimes. Like, well, we want the crowd to come where we're at, right? Like, we want everybody to come with us. Like, we're going the right direction. Why are they all going to him? So they're fueled by this jealousy, by this ego. Like, we want that. Now, again, it may have been out of curiosity, but I believe it was fueled by jealousy and their ego. So they come to Jesus and they challenge him with this question. Challenge him with this question. And again, they're identified with the Pharisees. They say, we and the Pharisees, and because they wanted the attention of the crowds to be with them, they, like the Pharisees, are now coming to challenge Jesus. And on the surface, on the surface, this question is about fasting, right? Why do we fast often? Your disciples don't. The question is about fasting. But I think in reality, the question is really about Jesus' followers and their adherence, their adherence to religious practices in general. This is just the low-hanging fruit. They're saying, why don't you behave like we religious people? Right? Y'all, now, y'all ever known anybody like that? Or better yet, have you all ever been that person? I, I have. Like, I've seen people who claim to be Christians. I'm like, why, why don't you behave like we religious people over here? And there's almost this religious superiority that we build up in our own minds. See, because this is really a question about the religious and the non-religious. Even the way the question is phrased implies that they are more religious, right? They say, why do we fast often? Like, look at us. We are constantly fasting. We're so pious. Like, we are so righteous. Look at us fasting often. Why don't you act like us? We're great men of faith. Why don't you behave like we do? And do you hear the tone that they come to Jesus with? Like, why aren't you guys just great men of faith like we are? (laughs) And I think Jesus' response, it shows that he came to bring about something new and better than anything they had ever known. Jesus came to bring something new. He's showing them what Paul would later, would later write in 2 Corinthians 5.17, where it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Jesus is going to show these disciples of John that he's not coming to just slightly alter anything. He's coming to bring about something new and powerful. He's coming with a purpose and with the authority to do it. Because this was Jesus' purpose. That we've seen over the last few weeks, right? That he came to draw people to himself. He came to save the lost, to heal the sick. He came to leave people fundamentally changed. Not to slightly alter their lives, but to be completely changed. See, this new faith, this new faith in Jesus, it ushers his followers into the kingdom of God. And I think we talked about that. It's maybe been a month ago or so. But it, it ushers them into this new kingdom. And it brings about something wildly different. I want to show you these aspects of this newness, the way this newness shows up here in today's text. 
And the first thing I want to show you is that the kingdom, it brings undying delight. It brings about this undying delight. So Jesus' response is, is fantastic here. Jesus responds in verse 15. Uh, 15. Is that a word? No? Some of you, maybe? Jesus responds in verse 15. He says, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, we need to understand the imagery, right? This, this bridegroom with the wedding guests, but what are these wedding guests? Well, literally, literally in the Greek, it says sons of the bridal chamber. Like, this is people who were there with Jesus. He says those who are with the groom. And, right, we know that Jesus, based off the way he's saying this, he's implying that he is the groom, right? Like, can they be sad while I'm here with them? And clearly, he's referring to himself, Right? Okay, so if Jesus is the groom, that's an important claim because, like we talked about the Christological claims that Jesus makes, you all remember that at all? Like Jesus makes these Christological claims? Well, he's making another one right here. Because if you flip back to the Old Testament, you'll see that the groom in the Old Testament is God. Again and again, there's this, there's this theme of God being the groom. Just one example is Isaiah 54, verses 5 and 6. It says, Indeed your husband... Your husband is your maker. His name is the Lord of armies, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of the whole earth, for the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and wounded in spirit, a wife of one's youth, when she is rejected, says your God. Again, here in the Old Testament, this is just one example of many that we could have used, but God himself is referred to as the groom, the husband. He's referred to that way. And Jesus uses this to refer to himself. He says, can they be sad while the bridegroom, while the groom is here with them? Jesus is saying, I'm your maker. I am God in the flesh. He's saying, I am the Messiah. If you want a fantastic picture of this in the Old Testament, go read the book of Hosea because you'll see it again and again. Where God is pictured as the faithful husband who pursues his adulterous wife again and again and again. That's who God is. And Jesus claims he is that groom. Now, Jesus is telling them that he's the groom the Messiah that they've been looking for, the one that they've been waiting for to come and pursue them. He's the one that they've been waiting for. And, of course, John's disciples probably should have recognized this, right? I mean, I'm going to be critical of John's disciples, but understand I'm probably denser, more dense. What's the proper way to say that? Uh, I'm, thick, I'm more thick-headed than they are, let's put it that way. I'm, I'm kind of slow. So I probably wouldn't have picked up on this either, but John's disciples probably should have because John actually tells them in John chapter 3, verses 27 to 30, and this is right after they hear a dispute between some Jews and John's disciples. It says, John responded, No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase and I must decrease. John's disciples probably should have recognized what Jesus was saying here, right? They probably should have known that Jesus was the groom. Now John, he said, he said as much, right? He's, he's the groom we've been waiting for. And he refers to himself as the groom's friend. He kind of almost pictures himself as the best man. Like he's standing by listening for the groom who is Jesus. And whenever he comes, he's, he rejoices over his voice. See, we need to celebrate the simple fact that we can hear Jesus' voice. And that's what he's getting at here. But Jesus here is he's asked specifically about fasting. 
And his disciples are apparently not fasting while the Pharisees and John's disciples are fasting often, right? Okay, so he's asked about it. Which made me ask, since Jesus answers this way, should we fast? As followers of Jesus, should we fast? And I hope you know the answer is yes, I believe we should. Um, I think we talked about that just a couple months ago, how we should fast. And Jesus assumes that we will fast. He says, when you fast, whenever you fast, here's how you should behave. Like, he talks about fasting and says that we should. So, of course, I think he assumes we will. And even his response here implies that they will fast, right? He says the the time will come when they will fast. Uh, Because the groom's going to be taken away, then they will fast. So he assumes they will. But Jesus does something interesting that I think is interesting here. He connects fasting with grief. He connects the two, right? The groom's going to be taken away, then they will fast. They can't fast now because they're with the groom. They have this, this joy with being with the groom. So he connects fasting with grieving. And what I believe he's getting at is that our disunity with God, the disunity we have here on earth because of our own sinfulness should cause us to grieve. It should cause us to grieve. Look, all of us have been separated from God because of our sin. All of us have. So what do we do? We pray and we fast and we practice other spiritual disciplines to draw nearer to God where true happiness is found. True joy, true happiness is found in God's presence. Like being with our creator, being with our maker like we're intended to be. That's where we're supposed to be. So we practice prayer and fasting and these other disciplines to draw nearer to God as he draws near to us so that we can experience his presence in our lives and experience true happiness. Um, I got to talk about this with our youth group this week. Um, Part of our youth group even late last night. Um, You all know some of these, some of our our teens and post-teens. They're kind of knuckleheads. Um, Just so you know, be careful whenever you walk into this building and it's dark because there may be four four people sitting on this front row when you open the door and they're just sitting there like, we've been waiting for you for an hour, Jared. It's like something out of a horror movie or something, right? I I actually thought it was funny. Um, They were a little disappointed that I wasn't overly scared of them. So anyway, um, it was fun. But I got to talk to this. I I got to talk to this point with with our youth group, with some of these people even last night. Like, we have been separated from God, but happiness is found with him. True joy is found with God. That's what we're made for, is to be in fellowship with God. You look at the Garden of Eden, whenever Adam and Eve are there, they walk with God in the garden. They experience life as it's intended to be before sin ever entered the world. That's what we should experience. We should want happiness that's there with God. See, I've always had these different compartments in my mind. I think I might even have said this last week, where we have happiness on one side and we have, we have following Jesus on the other. And like we separate these two things. I, at least I do. Because Jesus himself, he says, in this world you will have trouble. You'll have difficulty. It'll be hard to follow after Jesus. You'll experience persecution. You'll experience pain and sometimes famine, disease. All sorts of nasty things will come about whenever you follow after Jesus. Some of those things happen. Like, We live in a broken world. We're going to experience those things. So we can follow Jesus where it's going to be difficult, or we can pursue our own happiness, right? I always thought of those two things as separate. And it was actually a a book I've been reading by John Piper. I quoted last week. Um, But he, he actually says, look, true happiness is found when we're with God. Following Jesus is our greatest happiness. If you don't believe me, that's found all throughout the New Testament. You get to the book of Acts, you see when people experience happiness, it's when they are following after Jesus. You look at church history. When do people experience true joy, true happiness? It's when they're following after Jesus. 
even sometimes in extreme persecution. Just one example of this. Acts chapter 16, verse 25. Here, Paul and Silas, they've just been arrested and they've been in prison. And it says that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Are you kidding me? These guys have just been arrested and thrown in a nasty jail cell. They are sitting here in jail. And what are they doing? They are praying and singing hymns. Like these guys understood what true happiness is. It's not what we pursue a lot of times in the world. True happiness is being with Jesus. Like following after him is where true happiness is found. These guys are so happy that they're sitting here in a prison cell singing about it. Y'all, that may seem backwards to us, but that's because we aren't thinking biblically. True happiness is found when we are with the God we were made to be with. That's where happiness is found. That's where joy comes. It's because of a connection to God. And these disciples were not just, they they weren't fasting here in today's text because they were with Jesus. They experienced his presence in a very unique way. So they weren't fasting because they were in the presence of God in the flesh. There was no sadness. Instead, they celebrated. Now, we live in a time where we can experience God's presence in our lives by the power of his Holy Spirit. I believe that you can experience God's presence in your life in a very real way. Absolutely, I believe that. I believe that if you you haven't ever experienced that, I hope that you do. I pray that you do. I want you to experience God's presence in your life. But we still live in a broken and a fallen world. We still experience the results of sin. This disunity with God, the brokenness in the world. So, do I believe that there are times of fasting? Yes. Yes, I do. But whenever we look at the new and good gift that Jesus brought us, it will not only make us happy, but it will also bring us to this undying delight I mentioned just a minute ago. This unending delight. This life was meant, and it still is meant, to be lived in union with God, enjoying your Creator. One way that we can do that now is by fasting. Just asking God to usher in His presence in another, in just a very real way in your life. So, yes, absolutely. The kingdom, I believe, brings us to this place of undying, unending delight. Second thing we see here about the newness of this kingdom is that it demands dedicated discipleship. Now, we've talked about discipleship um, a couple times throughout this series. That's not a mistake. I actually, since we're talking about Jesus' power and his purpose, I think talking about discipleship is probably important. His purpose was to come and disciple people so that he could build up followers and then send them out who would disciple other people. And we'll see the church not just grow by addition, but by multiplication. So we'll see people multiply. And here, Jesus in his purpose says we need to have this dedicated discipleship. It's not some small thing. That's the emphasis I want to bring out today whenever we talk about discipleship. Not just, not just hey, we need to disciple people or we need to be discipled ourselves, but we need to be dedicated in that discipleship. Completely in on discipleship. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. And we get to verse 16. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth, because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. Um, I I love this. I've told you all you need to have a time of family worship with your families, um, like with your kids, with your spouses. I still believe that's true. Have a time of family worship in your home, absolutely. Um, But we'll read about some of Jesus' parables. And one of my favorite questions to ask my kids after we read these parables, like if we just read this, I'd say, guys, is Jesus talking about clothes here or is he talking about something bigger? And they know the answer by now. They know he's talking about something bigger. Jesus is almost always talking about something bigger. And that's right. So 
I think we need to do something real quick. And we're, this is going to look very different than what we typically do. Um, uh, I'm going to, I don't know about you guys. I, I say often, though, that I'm, I'm a little bit slow. So sometimes, sometimes seeing things, for me anyway, is helpful. Um, so I would just like to show you kind of the image that Jesus is talking about here. You all get to see my iPad for a minute. Okay, this is my favorite shirt. <laughs> yeah, see? Is it really my favorite? No, it's a cartoon. We get it. Okay. Um, and because it's my favorite shirt, I made it blue. I got all these options. You know, I'm a Royals fan, so we're going to make it blue. This is my favorite shirt. Okay. Now, Jesus says, Jesus says here, no one, no one patches an old garment with a piece of unshrunk cloth. Now, let's just say I'm wearing my favorite shirt. And because I'm not very smart, well, I get too close to something. And, well, I, I tear my favorite shirt. Now, my mother's also in the room, and she'll tell you I never once tore anything up. I never, never did any of that. So um, this, is, this is obviously a hypothetical. can't be real. Um, but let's just say I tore my favorite shirt. So now i got this tear on my shirt here, okay? Well, that tear causes a problem because I don't want to go out wearing a holy shirt, making it look like I, I, don't, I, I don't care or that it just looks bad. Like, I, of course, I want, I'm going to fix my shirt. Now, keep in mind, also, we're in the first century. Now, you all are like, why wouldn't you just go buy a new shirt? Okay. We're in the first century. We're talking to a first century Jewish audience. Clothes are expensive. Clothes are expensive. It takes time to, to make a new garment. So you don't just go out and buy something new. Instead, you have to fix this shirt. Okay? So how do you fix your favorite garment? How do, you, how do I fix my favorite shirt? Well, what I would have to do... Ooh, that was fun. Yeah, let's do that. That's a good idea. So what we're going to need to do then is we're going to need to find a patch. We're going to have to find a patch. Okay? So I'm going to take my patch, and you know what? We're going to make my shirt look, look pretty here. I'm going to take my patch, and I'm going to cover up the tear, right? So now here's my patch, all right here. Don't make fun of my artwork. It's not pretty. Now I've got to make it a little bit bigger than the hole, though, so I've got to go bigger than that. Okay. Now I'm going to come in here, and just to make it look even prettier, I'm going to take my nice pretty green thread, and I'm going to sew all this on. Can anybody in the room sew? Yeah, a couple of you. I can't. <laughs> So, anyway, I'm going to have to recruit one of you to help me sew this patch on here. But now we have our patch. Okay. But there's a problem. I just told you a minute ago I'm not very smart. Everybody says amen. Um, love you too. Okay. I'm not very smart. So I, instead of finding a piece of shrunken cloth that's already been washed, that's already been shrunk, I used a piece of unshrunk cloth. Now, what happens, what happens... Whenever I go and I wash this shirt, anybody know? Nobody wants to say it. Somebody say it loud. The patch is going to get smaller. Well, there's a problem. I just sewed this on here, and I'm a really good seamstress, so I just sewed this thing on here, and it's not going to come loose. So what's going to happen is now my tear goes all the way around this. And what started as something that seemed pretty small right in here, now it covers all of this. Okay, so now if I'm going to fix that again, what do I have to do? Uh-oh, well, now I'm going to need a bigger patch. So now I'm going to have to find another patch, and I'm going to run out of room, and you guys get the idea, so I'm just going to be done with this in a minute. Um, so now I've got to have a bigger patch, but it's all over that area, so now I've got to go even bigger. Uh-oh. And now I'm going to have to sew this on here again. Let's see if we can get our pretty green thread back out and sew this back on. You see how that's gotten bigger? You see how the damage is worse? Okay, I think you get the point. Now, I'm not very smart. Sometimes I have a hard time picturing those things in my head. So I wanted to show that to you for just, just for a moment. 
Because this is what Jesus says. This is what Jesus says whenever we're not dedicated to discipleship. That's what he says happens. See, whenever we take the old shirt of the Jewish faith and we try to sew Jesus onto it, it creates more problems than it solves. It may solve the immediate problem for a moment. But eventually that's going to tear away and it's going to cause a problem. See, Jesus came to institute, to initiate something new. And to expect these new converts to be immediately sewn onto the old system of Judaism, well, it's only to ask for trouble. That's all it's going to do is ask for trouble. See, Jesus didn't only come to cover up the sinful behavior of some people or to come and touch up the old system a little bit. Jesus came to inaugurate something new. Something new. Rather than simply modifying these these new followers' behavior by putting a small patch over the hole in their lives, Jesus came in to make them into a brand new person. Not something that's a little bit different than before. Not something that's just going to cover the hole in their lives for a moment. No, Jesus came to make them new. Brand new. See, if we are interested in the church, or let me say that differently. If all we're interested in, in the church is behavior modification. If that's all we're worried about, we've missed the point. We have completely and totally missed the point. See, we have a tendency to focus on behavior modification. Um, If you remember, just a few weeks ago, we talked about being amateur spec inspectors, right? We like to focus on these little problems in people's lives and try just to, to patch up these little areas and modify their behavior just a little bit. But instead of behavior modification, we need to be completely and totally focused on total transformation, Like seeing people radically transformed completely. Not just a little piece here or a little piece there. See, what we need to know is that Jesus didn't just live the perfect life and die a grueling death and and be raised from the dead so that you and I could be a slightly improved version of ourselves. That misses the whole point of the gospel. It wasn't just so you can be a, a slightly better person than you were before. That's not the point. He came to make you into a new creation. Not something with a little patch over the ugly areas in your life. He came to change you completely, totally, not just a little. So whenever we come to discipling others, we have to realize that it will take time. And if we try to slow a patch over a glaring problem, it's just going to cause irreparable damage in that person's life. It's just going to make it worse. Now, does that mean that we simply ignore the problems that people have in their lives, the sin problems people have in their lives? Of course not. Instead, what it means is that we need to be patient and we need to be completely committed to these people. Completely committed to them. Probably even more committed than they are to the Christian faith. We need to be committed to them. Because if the commitment to the one discipling matches the one being discipled, we have a problem. If Jesus' commitment was the same as his disciples, they wouldn't have been discipled. He had a greater commitment. So if we're going to follow Jesus and we're going to be committed to seeing people made into brand new people, brand new garments, not just one with a patch over it, we've missed the point. One commentator named uh, Charles John Ellicott, he was a pastor and theologian of the 18th century, he said, The more excellent way which our Lord pursued and which it is our wisdom to pursue is to take the old garment and to transform it as by, re- as by a renewing power from within, thread by thread, till old things have passed away and all things are become new. We don't just want to put a patch over. We want to see you become a brand new person, a completely new person. And to do this, as Jesus shows, it will demand dedicated discipleship. You will have to be dedicated in this. 
Because it's going to hurt. And it's going to take time. And it's going to take patience. But as the church, if we're going to follow Jesus' example, we have to be dedicated to discipleship. So, kingdom brings undying delight, demands dedicated discipleship. Third, it makes definitively different. Definitively different. Jesus continues, verse 17. It says, he says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the and oh boy, and both are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Okay? The picture, again, would have been common to a first century Jewish audience. They would have got this, right? The picture of wineskins. Wineskins would have been made by butchering an animal, and rather than just wasting the, the skin or the hide, it would have been tanned and used as a wineskin. It could have been used, so why would they just throw it away? Instead, they use it, right? So, it would have been taken to a tanner, prepared, would have had to have some special caution taken so that it didn't have a funny taste whenever you put the wine in it. But the idea is this. You didn't put new wine into an old wineskin. Why would you not do that? Well, because whenever you put new wine into a wineskin, it's still fermenting, which means that it's letting off some gases. Now, the problem with that is if you put it into an old wineskin, which has become hard and brittle, it's going to crack and split that old wineskin. Now, a new wineskin still has some, some flexibility to it. It's still a little bit pliable. So it's going to expand. It's going to move just a little bit with the release of these gases. So you would put new wine into new wineskins to prevent the splitting. Does that make sense? You all tracking with that? That's the picture Jesus uses here. Okay. And this is what Jesus says about these new converts, these, these tax collectors and sinners who are now having this fellowship with him. He says two things, really. Jesus is saying, first, that the old system, it was insufficient for these new converts. It wasn't going to do. To simply throw them into the, some version of the old Jewish faith, it would ruin both the old system and the new converts. And the same is true today if we try to put a simply Jewish frame on the Christian faith. Now, is there a connection to the Jewish faith? Yeah. Of course there is. You look, Jesus says, Jesus says that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them. So yeah, there's a connection. Of course there is. But what I'm getting at is DA, what D.A. Carson says. He says, to try to domesticate him, Jesus that is, to try to domesticate him and incorporate him into the matrix of established Jewish religion would succeed only in ruining both Judaism and Jesus' teaching. These converts, they need the new wine of Christianity to fill them, to fill them as as they follow after Jesus, they need something new as they're made into new vessels. As they're made into something brand new. So that's the first thing I think he's getting at. The second thing is that those converts, they need the new wine of Christianity to fill them as they are made into those new vessels. Okay? In other words, they need to be changed from the inside out. They have to be completely changed to be able to handle the teaching Jesus is bringing. Until we do away with the old self, until we do away with our old lives... We can never be filled with the new wine of the gospel. Again, I'm going to quote somebody who's been dead for a couple hundred years. John Gill is his name. He says, Love, grace, and blessing, blessings of God, cannot be received by natural men, by self-righteous persons. They do not suit and agree with their old carnal hearts and principles. They slight and reject them and let them run out, which proves their greater condemnation. The way one commentator put it is the new wine of, the new wine of Christianity requires new vessels to contain it. See, some of us, some of us, we sit around looking for God to show up and fill us, but we don't want to change. We don't want to change. 
we sit around like, God, why aren't you doing anything with my life? Why aren't you doing anything in my life? Like, God, why aren't you pouring into me? Why am I not experiencing your blessings, your love, your mercy, your grace? Why am I not experiencing your power in my life? Why not? All the while we sit by clinging to the old life. Like, we don't seem to understand. See, we want to continue being who we were before just with some new insight or some new word from God. But really, it's a lack of desire on our part to change into who God's making us into. See, it's a lack of preparation from us. We tend to stay in our old lives, wanting our old wants, doing our old deeds, and pretending that we're ready for more of God. Not changing at all. All the while, God's telling us to put off the old self so that we can receive the new. We're not called to just be a little bit different. We're called to put away the old self. To die to self. Put it away. And too often, we sit around waiting for God to do something while he's waiting on us. While God is looking at us, seeing that we still cling to the death and the decay of the old life. Why? Because, well, it's comfortable for us. It's familiar. So we cling to the old life. Um, I was trying to find a way to illustrate this truth. um, To show that we have to die to the old self. We have to put away the old self so that we can become this new wineskin and be filled with the new wine of Christianity. Like to experience God's power, his blessings, his purpose in our lives. I was trying to find a way to illustrate this. And some of you may have heard of this man. His name was C.T. Studd. Um, he was my cousin. You can tell by his name. Um, <laughs> C.T. Studd. No, not really a cousin. Um, made that up totally. Anyway, so C.T. Studd, he was a missionary who labored for decades decades in China, in India, and in parts of Africa. As a matter of fact, in Africa, he was a part of, um, of actually starting about this entire missionary society that was sent to parts of Africa. Um, so C.T. Studd was an incredible man used by God in incredible ways. But there's, there's a catch. C.T. Studd didn't start out that way. If you know anything about this guy, like, fantastic, you know that he did not start out as this, this powerful missionary who was going to go out and see the world change. That's not how his story started at all. See, Stud, C.T. Studd was actually very resistant to Christianity whenever he was in his teens. His father was a, was a dedicated follower of Jesus, and he wanted his kids to come to know Christ. He had, he had several boys. And uh, anyway, he would have evangelists to his home even after they spoke at church so that hopefully his kids would cling to the message of Jesus and follow after him. That's what he wanted for his kids. But that didn't work for Stud. It was years and years of rejecting the Christian faith, of running from the Christian faith, before he was finally converted at the age of 18. So everything's good now that he's 18, right? He's received Jesus. Everything should be smooth. Well, there's a problem. I think Stud was like many of us, and he was still clinging to the old life. See, even though he was converted at 18, he had already begun to gain fame and continued to gain faith because he was a very skilled athlete. He, he played cricket, um, and I don't know a thing about cricket, so don't ask me about it. Apparently, those who play cricket are called cricketers. I thought that was interesting. Never heard that before. Anyway, C.T. Studd was already famous because he was a very gifted athlete. He played cricket. So he was already, already people knew who he was. He had fame. He was going to make money. He had everything, and he was clinging to that even after his conversion. He continued to play cricket. And he said that he read his Bible regularly. He went to church on Sundays, but he never really shared his faith. Never really put away the old self. That was until one of his brothers became very ill um, to the point they called the family in. And Stud came around and started asking himself, what in the world am I doing with my life? How is my life of any consequence? So what? So I can, I can, I don't know how you play cricket. Somebody tell me how you play cricket. I can play cricket. You, you know how to play cricket. Are you really? 
That, I want to talk to you after the service. That's awesome. I know nothing about cricket. I, so I'm not going to pretend to. But here, Stud was already famous. Until his brother got sick, he never really asked, what does my life count towards? What is it worth? Does it matter? And it was here that C.T. Studd finally stopped clinging to his old life and saw God as he is and turned from his old life, put away the old self, and became this new wineskin. He quit playing cricket and actually said, I'm going to become a missionary, where he first went to China. After spending time there, he later went to India and then to Africa, actually multiple nations in Africa where he started this missionary society. See, Studd was filled with something brand new. Something new in his life. He had a purpose in life. He had a passion for the lost. And he had joy in experiencing God's power and his presence in his life. He experienced real happiness whenever he put away the old self. The fame and the prestige of being a famous cricket player wasn't going to do him any good. He knew it wasn't going to do him any good. So once he put that away and started following after Jesus and made his life count for something of eternal consequence, he experienced true happiness in his life. True joy in his life. Now see, I'm afraid that many of us are just like C.T. Studd in his first six years after conversion. If I went around the room and asked most of you, are you Christians? I think the majority, the vast majority of you would probably say, yes, I'm a Christian. Okay, are you experiencing true joy in the presence of Jesus in your lives? Some of you would be like, well, kind of. You know, I read my Bible regularly. Does your life count for anything? Let's ask it that way. What does your life count for? And what, what eternal consequences does your life count for? Like, what are you pursuing with your life? Are you being filled with the new wine? That Jesus talks about here. See, Stud understood that his life needed to look definitively different. Radically different than it did before. Not just a patch on his life where now, okay, I'm going to keep on doing everything I was doing before, but I'm going to read my Bible and go to church on Sundays. Oh, that's great. I'm so thankful that you're reading your Bible and you're here on Sunday mornings. But if that's the extent of following Jesus in your mind, you have missed the point. Jesus came to make you into something completely different, to transform you from the inside out so that you can now receive his blessings, to, uh, to have his power and experience his purpose in your lives. That's what he wants for you. And if we go around living the old life, we will never really be filled with the new wine of the gospel. We need to be radically changed, definitively different. And that's what the kingdom of God, experiencing that kingdom, experiencing the king in our lives, that's what that can bring. So what? Well, best question I could ask then is, have you submitted to the king? Have you come to the king and really said, I'm done with the old life. I want to be with the king of this kingdom. The one who brings about this undying delight. And really, Jesus is the determining factor. Have you trusted in him as your life? Because that's the point. That's the question. Have you trusted in him with everything you have? Have you repented of your sins, submitting to Jesus as the savior that you need, and commit yourself to live the life you have in the flesh? By faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Have you committed to that king? Because when you come to know the freedom of living in Christ, you're going to experience a different joy than you've ever felt before. Like a different happiness than you felt before. A happiness that makes it to where as you are sitting in a prison cell like Paul and Silas, you're persecuted for your faith, you can still sing. Like, y'all, I want that kind of happiness in my life. I want that joy in my life. That nothing, nothing can separate me from the joy of knowing my Savior. And of course there are times of sorrow over the brokenness we see in the world. Of course there are times of sorrow before that. But we can know that there is joy for today and joy for eternity because we have a new hope 
and a new king. Y'all, that's what we're here for. And whenever you become citizens of his kingdom, sons and daughters of that God, of that king, church, here's what we need to do. We need to work patiently to see people come to faith, and then we disciple them with absolute dedication, saying we want to see you changed completely, wholly, growing into faith. And the only way we can do that is to stop clinging to the old life, the life that only leads to death and destruction. Instead, we have the privilege of living a new life, the new life in Christ that never ends. Like, we have that privilege. If you are in Christ, you get to live a life that never ends and experience the joy that comes with being with your maker. Um, Best way I thought that I could close this out with was a quote. Since I just talked about C.T. Studd, I'd like to leave you with a quote from him. Um, If you don't share your faith, I hope Studd challenges you a little bit. Um, Here's what he said. He says, true religion is like smallpox. If you get it, you give it to others and it spreads. I'll leave you with that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, I thank you on a day like today when we celebrate fathers that we can talk about being filled with this new wine of the gospel. Um, Father, this has been a good reminder for me that if we cling to the old life, we're going to miss out on the blessing of experiencing your power and your purpose in our lives. Um, So, Father, I just pray that we would put away the old self completely that we would be done with the things of this world. Instead, we would pursue you and your kingdom and your kingdom alone, that we would become this new creation that we saw that Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians, that we would become new. Um, Lord, and I know that only happens, that only happens whenever you open our eyes to our sin and we repent and we turn, we follow you. So Father, I pray that you would open our eyes today that we would see life for what it is, that we would ask, what is the purpose? Why am I here? What am I pursuing with my life? Father, and we might put away our old desires and cling to the desire you have for us. Lord, help us. Um, Father, really what I'm asking is that you would make your power and your purpose clear in our lives, that we would see it for what it is, and that we would cling to Jesus. So, Lord, help us. Grant us eyes to see, ears to hear. Uh, Father, just let us know who you are, your power in our lives. Um, Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this word. Above all, I thank you for Jesus. Um, Apart from him, I know I don't have a hope. But because of him, we can have hope that never ends. Um, We can have delight that never ends, happiness that never ends fades away because we have a Savior who has already conquered death. So, Lord, for that today we praise you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.